Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, North Sentinel Island in the Bay of Bengal between India and Thailand is home to one of the most isolated indigenous peoples in the world. It has long captured the imagination of many, including that of a young American missionary named John Allen Chow, who wanted to go there to spread the word of God. He made his way there in 2018, breaking laws prohibiting visitors, and was killed by arrows, his death making headlines around the world. Now, a new documentary looks into his life and the events that led up to his death. It's called The Mission, and the co-directors join me to talk all about it. R.H. Thompson is one of Canada's best-known stars of stage and screen. He's also an avid student of Canada's war history, in part because many of his great uncles fought, many died in the First World War, and his father was a Second World War veteran. Fittingly, his first book, a memoir, is about how we tell stories of war, and he joins me to chat about the ghost life, wars, memories, and families. We check in on a little Halloween chaos in Calgary tonight, where the Walton family home is a very popular attraction, thanks to 2,002 liter bottles of pop that they have on hand to give out to trick-or-treaters. There's a great story behind what is now a decade-old tradition at the Walton home. But first, self-checkouts, just one of many tasks consumers are being asked to do themselves these days, transferring costs and responsibilities from the stores to their customers. But is it backfiring? And is it time for the industry to give that a bit of a rethink? We find out. As I mentioned, I'm here at work. Obviously, my wife's also working late tonight, so we weren't going to be home to hand out any candy. So I left a little bowl of chocolate bars outside our front door for anyone to take. And then on my way to work, I saw this cartoon that the New Yorker put out that compared doing that to self-checkout for trick-or-treaters. Can you imagine? Like somehow it was this thing where you're making them do all their own work, where you're not. They just have to pick out the chocolate bar, but you get the point. And of course, self-checkout has come under a lot of scrutiny and criticism over the past few years, as more and more stores cut back on staff, cashiers, and sort of force customers into this kind of DIY, do-it-yourself work right at the store. Now, I don't usually mind it much because I usually have a few items at a time for a few meals. So it's usually pretty quick and painless. But anytime you have a big shop, it's just, it's long to do all that work. Um, and lots of people will agree with this comedian. I am with technology. Melissa, my wife, boy, she loves all that stuff. She's just like Jane, loves all the technology, loves it. I hate it, which is what we had a little argument about a year or so ago. Because our local grocery store did the coolest thing. They pulled out all of the self-checkout machines. No more self-checkout machines at our grocery store. Right? She hates it. I love it. I don't like those self-checkout machines. Can't stand them. They're annoying. I remember the very first time I ever used a self-checkout machine. I didn't even know they existed. I was in line. Kid says to me, sir, I can take you over here. So I go running over. He's like, all right, sir, there it is. What is that? He said, sir, that is the self-checkout machine. You do the whole thing yourself. You scan, you beg, you pay, and you go. Like, wait a minute, isn't that your job? (laughs) Oh, no, sir, my job is to wait behind a desk over there and supervise you. (laughs) Really? You're gonna supervise me doing your job. Fascinating. That's Greg Vaccariello uh, with with the history of the self-checkout. Some people feel that way. I don't mind them so much. But more and more retailers are actually, as he mentioned, sort of reconsidering their self-checkout strategies. And it doesn't really have much to do with whether or not customers find them annoying or convenient. It's more about the bottom line, apparently. And 
just like getting rid of them in the first place was more about the bottom line, right? Uh, joining me now is Chris Andrews. He's an associate professor of sociology and business at Drew University. He's also author of a book called The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkout, Supermarkets, and the Do-It-Yourself Economy. Chris, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, happy Halloween. Was it busy? Was it busy for you tonight? Was it, was it busy? Uh, actually, it was. It was pretty busy. It was okay. good to see. Always, always. Tell me a bit about the self-checkout experiment. It feels like it's been here for a while. Um, and yet, just in the last maybe three, four years, I've noticed a big pickup. Like, much bigger places are using a lot more of them than they were in the past. I think your use of the word experiment is precisely the point. Uh, we are in the middle of a vast social experiment in using technology to offload paid work onto unpaid customers. Uh, businesses are looking, they're constantly looking for ways to enhance their bottom line, and they're testing to see what customers are willing to do as a way of further increasing their profits. Now, the self-checkout actually is rooted in the history of the modern supermarket is actually rooted in self-service. Uh, the original self-service or modern supermarket, the Piggly Wiggly, was developed in the early part of the 20th century, and the premise was if customers were willing to do more of the work, shopping, carrying things in a basket or a car, collecting things from aisles, stores would offer them a discount. Today, however, the question is, what does self-checkout deliver? And it turns out it doesn't really deliver any of the things that it promises both the businesses and to us as consumers. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess if you think back to the past, and I have, I'm old enough to remember when you'd go to, and, and I've been in countries where you go to the store and everything was behind, was behind counters. You had to ask for everything. So someone was doing all that work for you. And you're right, absolutely. Over the, over time, the grocery store is sort of a, a, an experiment in in DIY. Um, how does the how does the self checkout the self checkout feels like a, a step further though? Uh, and I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's just age, right? Maybe it's just the age we're in. But the, the self-checkout always felt like one step further than some of the other things that you've been asked to do for yourself, although I suppose you weigh all, all your own vegetables these days and so on. Well, I think the idea that businesses were looking for and what the, the manufacturers of these devices were selling businesses was the idea of an initial investment cost that over time would pay for itself. Uh, at the time self-checkouts were being introduced, uh, major non-union retailers were entering the U.S. market, for example, and so it was placing greater and greater pressure on union competitors to find ways to cut costs. And so they looked to self-checkouts as a sort of magic genie to help them reduce their labor costs, especially in terms of benefits. What they didn't anticipate is the effects that we're seeing today, the fact that it's an imperfect system, as well as the unexpected loss through theft that's intentional or otherwise, and so businesses now, I think, are starting to reconsider whether or not they're actually saving money or losing money through this technology. Yeah, and, and that feels like a recognition of that has accelerated somewhat in the past couple of years. And I was interested to see all the different ways in which there are, I guess, losses within the business too, because it's not necessarily shoplifting as we understand it. There's a lot of things that seem to go on at self-checkouts that aren't necessarily what we'd consider to be theft in the way we normally view it. So as a manager explained to me, there's various sorts of losses that occur to self-checkouts, ranging from what they call walk-offs, people who just walk off with stuff because they're just frustrated with the technology and they can't complete their transaction, to people that are deliberately and in an organized fashion manipulating the system 
to uh, fraudulently take things out of the store. Right. I mean, I, we always see that, you know, these, bana- these bananas aren't organic, right? Why not just put in the code for the, for the non-organic ones, which are significantly cheaper? I suppose some of that goes on, too. It's asking an awful lot of, I mean, I think we've gotten used to it to some extent. But what's your, what are your thoughts on just the whole idea of self-checkouts? Because I think there's been a bit of a backlash against them as well. Grocery stores were already becoming sort of more, more and more empty when it came to staff. I guess the argument here was that this frees up staff to do other stuff, but most of the time you just notice there's less staff. Yeah, you know, that's what's interesting is we found that similar self-service technologies in, for example, banking freed up uh, loan officers and bank employees to uh, invest their time in other profitable sorts of businesses, such as servicing clients, um, reviewing assets and loans. Uh, And in the food service industry, we see that self-service technology frees up front-end employees to do things like offer table service or, in some cases, delivery to your home. In supermarkets, though, it's not necessarily as clear. It looks that they were looking to substitute labor with technology, and it doesn't deliver any of the things it promises. It's not quicker. It's not faster. It's not cheaper. And right now, businesses have billions of dollars of sunk investment in this technology, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do? Do we double down on this and we find ways to enhance security, but that risks alienating customers? Or do we remove this technology? I think one of the big challenges and maybe perhaps the biggest mistake the business made was when installing the technology, they never made a really compelling message to customers. They sold it to businesses as a way to save labor costs, but they told customers, this is a faster, easier way to check out, but clearly it isn't. And when they introduced it in the context of a national recession, I think it only enhanced people's suspicion that this is all about the bottom line and had nothing to do with convenience or the customers. I'm not sure how it is in the U.S. right now, but because of the increase in food prices in Canada as well, at this point, there is a bit of a a backlash and a suspicion against against big grocers in this country and their business practices sort of broadly. And I imagine that's playing into a bit of a backlash against the the self-checkouts as well, which seem to be, as you put it, they're just another sort of another nail in that coffin, right, so to speak. Exactly. Where we have somewhat non-competitive markets, quasi-monopolies, Businesses such as the the airlines have been able to push through wholesale changes without any sort of regard for customers. So today, unless you have the means, you must print your own boarding pass. You must check your own baggage, things that were previously done by paid employees. But in competitive industries where some businesses are still willing to offer personal service, they risk losing customers if they try to implement too much self-service they risk losing those customers to their competitors. And so as one of the managers told me, there aren't really any new customers. They're just somebody else's customers. Right. So we're in the middle of this vast social experiment where businesses are trying to figure out, do we fish or do we cut bait? So Chris, when looking, I guess Walmart sort of cutting back a little bit, I imagine if a couple of the big ones start to move away from them, we might see a bit of a shift. But what do you think, what do you think the future looks like for, for self-checkout in the next few years? I think a lot of it depends on what customers are willing to put up with. Uh, as I tell my students, vote with your pocketbooks, reward companies whose business practices you like, and restrict it, your money from spending it at businesses that you don't. I think we're nearing an inflection point. I think companies are looking at their bottom lines and they're asking themselves, 
are we really saving more money than we're losing? And what I don't think they anticipated was how much money that they would actually lose through self-checkout lanes. I don't think they anticipated the need to monitor self-checkout lanes. I don't think they anticipated how imperfect the technology is. And I don't think they anticipated the public pushback, to be honest. Yeah, one of the things we've seen here, of course, is now some stores uh, have taken sort of checking people's receipt, a la, a la Costco, checking people's receipt when they leave. And, if, you know, and that angers people to no end. You force people to go to a self-checkout to do their own checking out, and then you sort of treat them like maybe they're stealing, right? Which may, they may well be, but still, it's, that's a real, that's a thorny one, thorny one for retailers, I would think. I, I think the problem is that the self-checkouts, it, it risks turning what is supposed to be a leisure activity uh, into feeling like you're going through airport security, where your every action is being scrutinized and your risk being caught up in the dragnet of artificial intelligence and computer scanning. You mentioned, of course, that it's happening elsewhere. I mean, and anyone who's flown recently knows all about it. Uh, you know, you talk about the overworked consumer. A lot of things have been now downloaded on us. I guess at some point, I mean, if it's convenient, fine. But if it isn't, I think you're right. We will see a backlash. I think that's what's happened. One of the problems with the self-checkout lane is that it bends time. Uh, when we're waiting in line, we're very aware of how much time is passing with each passing second. But when we're busy doing tasks, we're often the sense of time going more quickly. So it feels like going through self-checkout is actually faster than it really is. And so it distorts time. But I think as people are finding out, it's really more of a hassle than being served by a person who knows what they're doing. One of the things I read that was interesting was that sort of gum sales, the things that people buy in checkout lines completely disappear in self-checkout because you're doing the work, right? That's the difference. Exactly. It has had a huge negative effect on impulse purchases, uh, which turn out to be a lot of the shopping. A lot of our spending in supermarkets is not planned behavior. It's unconscious, unplanned behavior from running the maze to get to the items at the edges of the store that are deliberately placed there. What might be interesting to see is if they figure out what the utility of them is. So, of course, if you're, if you're only buying a few things, they're not bad, right? So you sort of reserve a half dozen or so for those who need want to get out quickly. But you bring back, you know, I, I guess Trader Joe's doesn't have them. You bring back the majority of those cashiers to try to make sure that you, you sort of, you do a little bit of both. You take the good from what they, what they can do, uh, but then you also allow for the fact that maybe they weren't such a good idea in the first place. I think they're likely here to stay at least as one of several options of purchasing, in part because the businesses have already sunk those costs, but also looking over their shoulder of being afraid that if we don't offer that and our customers do, we risk losing that demographic. Uh, that being said, I think they're also a liability as businesses are increasingly aware. So they really make sense for people who are buying a handful of items. But as we saw during peak COVID, taking an entire cart through self-checkout is yeah. really impractical and actually takes longer and creates more longer lines. Chris, I'm sure you'll have lots more work to do on this in the, not in, in the future. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Chris Andrews is an associate professor of sociology and business at Drew University. He's also author of a book called The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkout, Supermarkets, and the Do-It-Yourself Economy. We've had some texts in, as we often do. Uh, Sarah in St. Albert says, I hate self-checkout. I go to cashiers wherever I can. I work at a store. Um, I I work at a store, but I still go to the cashiers. Yes. And Ron says, a self-checkout, Savon Foods actually had machines that didn't take cash. That was another thing, too. They make it a bit more difficult to pay. Uh, or try getting your free $10 item for a mistake. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I use them because they're convenient. And I try not to use them all the time because, obviously, you, you, you're cognizant of the fact that that's someone's job that you're doing, right? I think that's part of the issue as well. And as we've had more issues with high food prices, maybe some of us are a little bit less willing and, you know, the timing of self-checkout kind of came along, at least in a, in a huge way, uh, just as we were sort of coming out of the pandemic into this whole time of high food prices. So maybe we weren't so we just weren't so inclined to want to pay a lot more for food and go there and scan and bag them ourselves, right? I mean that that was part of the problem as well. <laughs> Last night, we told you about a survey that showed a growing number of Canadians, 44%, uh, this is according to Environics, believe that immigration levels in this country are too high at the moment. That's up from just 27% last year. The reasons are not a sudden belief that immigration hurts the economy. Quite the opposite. A vast majority don't believe that's true. And a vast majority of Canadians also believe the country should continue to serve as a safe haven for refugees. It's a bit more nuanced. Uh, The issue is more about housing and affordability and whether the current rate of new arrivals to this country is sustainable. Um, not just for everyone here, but for them too. Again, the population grew by more than a million people last year in this country to over 40 million, the highest rate since 1957. Well, today the immigration minister, Mark Miller, uh, laid out the federal government's priorities for improving Canada's immigration system. We've heard anything from Canadians over the past few months from the extensive surveys that are being done. Um, Canadians aren't closed to immigration, but they want people like me, they want provinces, they want cities to do a better job in coordinating uh, the arrival of immigrants, even temporary workers. Uh, and that's something that is a challenge for all levels of government. Right. Uh, Miller says that he, they have no plans on dropping immigration levels, but said, quote, that Canada needs to get its act together on housing to ensure the social consensus remains on the benefits of immigration. Of course, that consensus works both ways. And a report out today shows that more recent immigrants uh, are saying goodbye to Canada at, at greater numbers than they used to. Uh, the Institute for Canadian Citizenship and the Conference Board of Canada released a report called The Leaky Bucket, a study of immigrant retention trends in Canada. And it finds that it's especially true for permanent residents who've been in the country, I think, between four and seven years. And there was a record spike in the number of immigrants who left this country between 2016 and 20. 2019, according to that study. So what's going on? What's the impact? How urgently does it need to be tackled? Uh, Daniel Bernhard is CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, who part of part of those who had this study done, and he joins me now. Daniel, thank you. Pleasure to be with you, Ben. Thanks for having me. So tell me a bit about, about the headline here, because sometimes you, there's a difference. I was leafing through the study as well, but sometimes between the headline and the interpretation of it, what's actually in there uh, can be a little bit different. But there does seem to have been, at least up until 2019, a pretty significant increase in uh, recent immigrants leaving the country. Uh, that's right. It, it's, not, uh, it's not actually just recent immigrants. It's all immigrants, uh, irrespective of when they've arrived, have been leaving it at higher rates and, and leaving sooner. It's a trend that's been going on for quite some while. But to answer your initial question, we talk so much, and sensibly so, I suppose, about the number of people who are coming 
And this week, like you said, Minister Miller will table in Parliament the number of permanent residents that the government will aspire to, to welcome in the, in the coming years. But we don't talk at all about how many people are leaving. And actually, we started doing this work because I got into this job a couple of years ago and I wanted to know how many people were sticking around. And the information didn't exist. No one had really bothered to look. And so that you know opened the door to, to this whole uh, question of retention. And now we know that onward migration, immigrants who come to Canada and then leave the country subsequently has been creeping up kind of silently for decades. And now it's spiked in the most recent years for which we have data. We're talking about jumps of 30 to 40% over the average rate. And this is before interest rates were a thing. This is before affordability was the buzzword. This is before the pandemic. So we think that the actual rate of immigrants leaving Canada now is probably much, much, much higher than that. And so this all raises the question of not just how many people are coming, but are they able to succeed here? And if we are counting on immigration to fill really important roles in our economy and society in areas like construction and healthcare, where there are just not enough Canadian-born graduates to possibly fill the need that we have, if we're unable to Re, uh, retain these people in Canada, then we have a big, big problem. So it's not just a question of the quality of life of immigrants and them saying, maybe this wasn't the greatest idea coming to Canada. It's about the quality of life from all of us who depend on immigrants to become Canadian and make those contributions. It's a real wake-up call. And like you say, it's a two-way street. So I'm happy that we're uh, having the conversation on these terms. I know it was difficult because, again, you mentioned you there isn't really a data set available that was easy to use to do this kind of research. Uh, and the, I guess the most recent one available was 2016 to 2019. But did you get a sense of who is leaving? Not yet. So this is right. the first study. And as with many firsts, um, the, the, the question is, well, what about this and what about this? So we now have a baseline of how many people who have arrived um, leave the country. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they go, whether they go back to their country of origin or to a third country. These are all questions for subsequent, uh, for subsequent research. But we do know that there are people who have come to Canada and that Canada has invested a lot in the selection process in accreditation in language training and settlement services and people who are not able to succeed here are are saying that they're they're no longer interested in staying that's a pretty damning reflection i think on the state of our society in which the rest of us continue to live but also a real warning sign that our future prosperity which really is dependent on these immigrants making a home here um, and being able to contribute to their full potential, that that shared prosperity of theirs and of ours, all of us, um, is is in jeopardy. And it's something that I would hate to talk about in the past tense, uh, like yeah. countries like Argentina do. But I think that's really the specter of what we're talking about. It's not going to be tomorrow, but it's a possibility. It's interesting. I mean, I, I suppose in some ways it, it shouldn't be surprising that we never actually measured the retention rate. I mean, many businesses over time didn't necessarily measure retention the way they should have. But this feels like something we should have known a lot more about while making decisions about future immigration, right? Because there is always the quality, as you point out, there's always the quality uh, and the quantity, right? They sort of, you, you referred to it as com compassion to ambition, which I thought was a great way of putting it, because that's essentially where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I've learned uh, in my few years on Earth that common sense ain't so common, so I'm not right. entirely surprised. Uh, 
but you're 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 right and and you've you've quoted me correctly i think that part of this is an outdated mentality that we still think of immigrants as people who are coming from destitute situations with no other options who should be happy to live in a great country like canada which remains a great country i mean i'm not saying that the whole world is broken and that everything's you know going down the going down the drain um but what we fail to recognize is that over many years you know, I mean, there are still people who come like that. My parents came to Canada like that, um, you know, with proverbial $5 in their pocket, very little English uh, capacity, et cetera, and managed to, to find their way. But our immigration system has become way, way, way more selective uh, over that time. And so the people we're bringing in now have much more advanced education, professional experience. They were much wealthier comparatively in the country of origin. They're not the poor people who are leaving those countries anymore. In many cases, they're actually the rich people from those societies who are trying to escape unlivable climates or political corruption or other things like that. And so they are coming with a lot more to offer and they're much better educated. They're much more global. They're much more worldly. And so of course, their expectations will also be different, but our settlement services and our dialogues around immigration still talk about immigrants as though they're all my parents, and they're not. <laughs> and so we, we, we have failed to even contemplate the possibility that people wouldn't want to stay here, <laughs> which is why we never looked at it. And it just shows how out of date our mentality has become. And by extension, all of the services that are, that are born of that mentality are equally out of date. And we need to catch yeah. up. It's interesting because, of course, I, I spent time working and living in China, and of course, we've we've attracted a lot of people from mainland China to this country. And even sometimes, I listen to people in my family talk. Well, they must be happy to be here. I'm like, well, I guess you haven't you've never been to China, right? So, a big Chinese city now. There are a lot of issues about living there, but a big Chinese city is modern. There's public transit everywhere. Everything's new, and then they come here and they think, ah. Eh. Hmm, not quite what I thought. And of course, as you mentioned, they don't only have a lot to offer. They also have a lot of options because they're often educated and they're mobile. They're already uprooted. So they can go if it's the U.S. next or maybe they don't like the crime in the U.S. So they go to Singapore. Like there, there are options out there for them now for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, picking up your life and your family is not an easy thing. I mean, you don't do it every 10 minutes. But um, there are plenty of reasons why I think people would not want to live in China. Um, and yes. we see that with uh, outward migration. Uh, but not at any cost, right? <laughs> and so what we see, and you mentioned earlier, is that there seems to be this really elevated um, uh, period. And that's, I think, actually one of the hopeful findings is that we now understand from this data pretty concretely that the risk of immigrants leaving the country is highest between f years four and eight after they become permanent residents. So uh, there's there's like a danger zone where people have been living here for a few years and then it seems like they kind of reevaluate their situation and say, was this really the right move? Should we stick with it or try something else? And if you make it to the end of that danger zone past year eight, then the chances of you leaving are actually very, very small. Some people do, but it, it goes down significantly. Right. So I guess that's when that's what it takes root, right? That's when it takes root those those four to eight years. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a natural cycle. You know, people will change jobs in that time. They'll move house. You know, people make decisions in, in, in sort of five-year chunks. So we, we now know that there is an important opportunity to create a positive experience of Canada, especially in those first five years. Um, Daniel Bernard, just be the decisive, the decisive years. Uh, Daniel, you, you brought up a few different ways of, of fixing this. Certainly settlement services should be 
tailored for a for a modern uh, for the modern arrival to this country now instead of just to what we had fifty you know thirty forty fifty years ago. Uh, what else would you like to see done? Well, I think we should start there. Um, one of the um, lesser known statistics is that very few immigrants to Canada actually use settlement services. One of the reasons. Um, uh, why, of course, is because they already speak the official languages. They already do the things that settlement services are, are meant to teach people to do because, of course, they're so well educated, et cetera, because of our modern selection process. So one of the things our organization does is we've got an alternative uh, settlement service called the Canoe Access Pass, C-A-N-O-O. This is an app that gives newcomers and their families free entry to over 1,400 culture, nature attractions across Canada. Um, you can go zip lining in Whistler, you can go to the Vancouver Art Gallery, you can do a whole bunch of things, whale watching, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a way to create positive experiences for your family, things you can't do in China, um, no matter how uh, um, much better the trains are over there, for example. Right. Um, and this service is now used by over a quarter million people. That's more than all other settlement services in Canada, by some counts, more than all other services combined for less than 1% of the cost. So we are looking to innovate in this area of what it means to have a settlement service. I think that's, you know, something that organizations like ours can do and are doing. There are other things in the area of professional accreditation. Like you just had a, an ad on, uh, at the commercial break about, uh, healthcare professionals and the shortages right. and the shortages. Well, we could have lots of people who are coming in, who are connected directly to jobs in healthcare, perhaps with a stop in a professional college, uh, for bridging training on the way, but that, have that job attached to them from the minute that they arrive, actually from before they arrive in the country. So we can make it easier for people to find their way into the places where they will succeed by helping Canada succeed. And I think that's really the win-win that we're looking for. Is there been, I mean, I've had contact with immigrant services in the past, immigration, you know, sort of settlement services in this country. Some of them do really good work, but it feels like it's been a system that sort of operated on inertia for a very long time. Not that people don't do good work in it, but we do invest an awful lot of money in it to some extent, although they probably tell you different. Um, but it feels like it's a system that hasn't been rethought in a very long time, other than what you've just been talking about. I mean, I don't want to get into you know, how much is too much. Um, but I think they are social services predominantly. I think that's the important way to look at them is that the majority of people who use these services I'm, are very grateful that they're there when they need the housing, when they need the help writing CVs or learning the language, when they need these things. Um, but for the large and growing number of people who don't need those things, we don't have really a service to help people get established here and raise the probability that they will successfully find their home uh, and right. decide to become Canadian. And so we're just talking about a complement to those things. You raise an interesting point, too, because I, I think some people, you might look at those numbers and say, well, we had more than a million people come in last year or come in. We didn't have a million people come in. We had a million people who were either here or on their way. Or, uh, But, you know, the population went up by a million, mostly due to immigration. What? How do you tell people who say, well, you know, sure, people are going to leave. That's fine. I guess part of it, and I don't want to separate you know, different people arriving in Canada from each other. But often the ones are le that leave are the kind of the ones you want to hold on to. And I don't mean that in a bad way to all the other ones. Well, the million numbers get thrown around a lot. And I think it's important to break that down a little bit. So of that million, about 400,000, 430,000 are permanent residents. And those are the right. ones that we're counting. Those are people who can stay and who are on the track to citizenship. 
Um, the rest of them are temporary, whether they're visa holders, work permit holders, temporary foreign workers, or international students who form a large, a large bunch of those. So it's it they're they're not the same, and they're on different trajectories, and their relationship to Canada is is different. I'm talking specifically about people who have attained that permanent status and mm -hmm. are still deciding not to stay. We're not talking about people whose visa didn't get renewed or something like that. Um, it's 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 more specific than that but the the general issue that i'd like to talk about is mm. that the question of how many i think is 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 the wrong way to look at it or it's too blunt i think it's better to say how many of these versus how many of those so instead of saying is it 400,000 or 500,000 or 200,000 or whatever kind of big number you want to talk about i would prefer to say Let's set a goal that every Canadian or 90% of Canadians should have access to a family doctor by 2035 or 2030. Well, we're going to graduate X many students. We're going to have Y many retirements. Therefore, we need Z many people who are going to come with those skills from uh, around the world. And maybe that's, you know, 10,000 doctors. Maybe that's 100,000 doctors. Let, the, let the, the economy and the facts of our society drive those decisions. If we want to build more housing, we're not going to build more housing by keeping people who know how to build housing out of the country. <laughs> um, the only way out is through, but we should be intentional about how many carpenters and how many tilers and how many welders. Um, because in international students, for example, a huge number of them are studying business administration for which there is no need, but we could have a lot of people who are studying carpentry for which there is a great need. So it's not about how many, it's about how many of, of, of which people with which skills entering which industries we need to be a bit more specific, and then I think the the, the, the Daniel, I have to. I hate to cut you off. We're we're gonna, we're gonna have to leave it at that. As you said, common sense isn't always so common, but I, you make some great points. Uh, I appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much. It's been a long day for me. I very much appreciate your tolerance with my rambling answers, and thank you to your listeners as well for engaging with this conversation. Uh, how was your Halloween night tonight? Did you get a lot of, did you get a good crowd? Did you get a lot of people coming by? Uh, 1-877-399-9898 is the text line. 1-877-399-9898. It's probably wrapping up in a lot of places at this hour. It's just after eight o'clock out here on the West Coast. So that's normally about the time it starts to cool, cool down a bit. It was a nice night, actually. At least it was a nice night where I am for trick-or-treating. Um, one place that was expecting big crowds tonight was the Walton family home in Calgary's Auburn Bay neighborhood. And you want to know why? Have a listen to what they did. This is from last year, by the way. Orange, all right, keep the numbers coming. Watch your fingers. Four, root beer. Okay, next number, let's go. Well, if that sounds like they're handing out soft drinks, it's because they are. They are. It's the family's, the family's annual tradition of handing out two-liter bottles of pop. Uh, they do that on Halloween. It started about a decade ago as a bit of a prank. And like all things like that, they kind of take on a life of its own. Um, the daughter, April, in the family posted a video on TikTok this week showing what the house looked like because there were something like 9,000 bottles. I think maybe it wasn't that many. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But she takes a tour through the house and everywhere you look, there are two liter bottles of soda. Absolutely everywhere. 2,000 bottles, 2,000, not 9,000, the whole place would fall down. 2,000 bottles uh, that will be handed out um, tonight. 
a household record for the family. I believe it is. Uh, so she was showing them around. Of course, this went absolutely haywire. I'm, I'm surprised people didn't fly in from uh, all over the place to try to to try to um, to try to take advantage of all this. So we thought we would ask them how it went tonight with all this. And of course, like everything in life, we're simply holding on for them to join us because uh, they had uh, they're having a bit of a bad connection also it's been a very busy night for them as you might imagine with those 2000 bottles of soda to hand out it's an interesting thing to hand out a because it's heavy so there's a lot someone posted on on social media today that they must be a family of, of, of you know of people who handle back pain or something because uh because it was because of how heavy they are but man it seems like it's been a, a huge success over the years and again as i mentioned it started off i believe as a bit of a prank just because handing out two liter bottles of soda at halloween is 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 really heavy so they they would do that and then it's sort of growing into this huge thing uh, i gather they had to make five trips to go and get these uh, 2,000 bottles back to the house. And they had to call in a structural engineer to make sure that the house could handle the load, which is, which is always interesting. So again, they're standing by, we think, in Calgary to tell us how their night went with all these bottles of pop. And as soon as they're, as soon as they're here, uh, there they are. There they are. We've been waiting. Shane and April, or just Shane, I'm not sure, but thank you so much for your time tonight. Congratulations. No worries. April's still outside. There's still people coming. It's still so. going. It's still going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It it, <laughs> it started at about three. Jeez. Wow. So this has been, I mean, I saw the video on TikTok. I guess what was already a big deal became just a, an even bigger deal this year. Yeah. I, I didn't, I, I was a little bit worried because it's been cold and it's a weekday. But right. that, yeah, like we, I officially counted, we've done 1,700. 300 to go is that right 2000 2000 the right number i guess i don't think i don't think i'll get the 300 but uh the 2000 was an easy an easy number to just order and yeah. uh, i had a buddy i had a buddy in, in town who owns a bunch of restaurants from the vintage group right. and he he helped me organize it with coke because i just it's 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 beginning a lot and so i need needed more of like logistically so i had to use it, some of my big work trucks, like I have cube bags, wow. so I had to use those to get all the pop to my house because Coke wouldn't deliver to a residential area because their trucks are too big. That's right. I saw the I saw April's video from inside the house. I mean, your house was covered in, in bottles. Uh, <laughs> did you really have to bring in a structural engineer to make sure everything was okay? I legitimately caught like I put it out on our Facebook like community and i was like is there anyone who's a structural engineer who or a framer who understands like structure weight and i had a picture <laughs> of all the soda in the garage and the one guy comments he's like i am a structural engineer and i can guarantee you that your bonus room cannot handle all of that <laughs> <laughs> so oh, it's still going on it's still going on great yeah there's still so i called them i called them and we worked out how much i could safely have upstairs without worrying about any issues so so i was hearing you I mean people you kind of yell out what what you, you how does it work because I, I noticed from the just listening to it that there's sort of a crowd and then you kind of offer up what the next bottle is going to be and then someone has to kind of do you no, get no, to order so what, what they want or? yeah so the down below there's push buttons hmm? but because they've been pushed so many times they're not working anymore oh no and so <laughs> They, they were supposed to push the push button and then the light was supposed to shine up because we can't hear with all the music. Right. So now now you have 
now we had some guys down below shouting up top so that we'd know what everyone wanted. And yeah. now they just the stragglers are just screaming from the from the street and then we it just sounds fire like Wall it down. Street. It sounds like Wall Street in the old it, days. Out it a hundred percent was like Wall Street today. Because I'm gonna guess we probably had about three or four hundred kids at a time, like everyone lined up outside, and it was just oh, mayhem. Wow. So I mean, what's what I find amazing? I guess when did this begin? Because I gather I was reading that it began as a bit of a joke by you, uh, like ten years ago. It sort of just started as, as a bit of something funny, right? Like we'll give them heavy <laughs> bottles of pop at Halloween. Yeah, and it, literally ten years ago, it's my tenth year of doing it, and the first year I, you know, we had a few kids come, but. It was just like, I just thought it was hilarious. And my wife's first comment was, was like, why are you getting that? And I'm like, because it's funny. <laughs> she's like, you're such an idiot. And then now 10 years later, you see her, she's all dressed up, taking orders, uh, like right into it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm an idiot. All right. Uh, I, I read somewhere that people people thought you must have must have some sort of back pain business <laughs> to try and give out something that heavy at Halloween. But everyone seems to really love it. You know what? In the first few years, there was... It was, it was funny because there was so many meltdowns because right. you'd have like three or four little kids come from the same family and then they'd all bring their pot back to their dad. Right. And he, he's like, what do you want me to do with this? And they're like, well, we can't carry it. And then he'd have to carry like, you know, 15, 20 pounds. And or they try to tell the kids got to take back three and only can have one. And that, yeah, right. try telling that to a kid. Yeah, no kidding. And, and also, I gather there have been people have done all kinds of there's all kinds of rituals now. People drink the whole things on your, or try to drink the whole bottle <laughs> on your front lawn. We, I had a buddy's, I had a buddy's kid, and she would have been about ten, I think, at the time. So it would have been about four, four or five years ago. And she did. She like pounded half, three quarters of it, and then her mom <laughs> sent me a picture. She threw up when she got home. Oh no! <laughs> so this is all gets a bit messy there, Shane. Um, oh yeah. Tell me about, it's, tell it's me about this. Or you must. You must have seen, I mean, it must be, what do your neighbors think? Because it must be a lot of people on your street to come to your place. My neighbors are at the point where they just shake their head. They're just like, <laughs> you know what? Do it, Shane. You're an idiot. But the, a lot of them had kids. So they're like, they're okay with it because their kids loved it. Right. So what was the, what is the most popular, what, what goes first? What goes first? I was looking at all the different things you have and I was wondering what would, what would kids want if they could have one bottle of one bottle of anything? You know what? I feel like the Fanta and the root beer were the big, my wife screaming at me. Fanta was, was the one. Fanta was the one this year. Yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, this sounds like it's become, it's taken on a life of its own. Do you plan on, is it something, how do you save up the money through the year? Like, how does it all work? Do you just sort of, <laughs> do you start planning as of like Christmas day? Or like this, okay, October 31st coming up. Um. Yeah, kind of like, uh, yeah, it's, this year was a little bit like the, cause we used to use the PC brand. So we went with right. Coke. So it was a little bit more money, but the convenience of it was good. I own I own a, a small business, so I own an electrical right. service company here in town. Um, so that helps take care of things and whatnot. Uh, as here well. come the and, tunes again. It's great. Yeah, What's great about this shade is is that of course when you do a radio show live from a little room, you miss out on Halloween, right? So this, it, I kind of feel like I'm standing kind of by your house, sort of off well, on the side, watching this all happen. So that's great. I'm glad you let me uh, if, let me join in. If you would have told earlier, it was wild. Like it was <laughs> my my sister and brother in law came to help, and my brother in law was like, 
Oh my goodness. This is insane. Insane. <laughs> I was going to say, it felt like there could be like a mob with the people that, how much did the TikTok video do you think made a difference? And you must have, did you see April make it or did you know it was going out? Uh, well, she's, she has a few, like she has a big following on TikTok. Like she has a hundred thousand plus followers. So, wow. I mean, she, when she posts videos and most of the ones of me being silly are the ones that seem to go but yeah, like I think the one, the big one that she has, has like thirty million views. Yeah, yeah, it's a and lot. that's been the one that circulated. And then this latest one we did with uh, the Eminem song, "Guess Who's Back." Yeah, that that's hit some pretty good traction. So we'll see how how that how that one does. But that one was actually fun because um, we had we've been house. busy. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, the house was just coated. So, I mean, you know, when you have a few chocolate bars left, that's easy to get rid of. If you have, you know, I don't know how many bottles you'll have left, but what do you do if you have any any remainders, so to speak? We do lots of community events, community charity stuff. So um, whenever there's an opportunity to bring, you know, a treat or, you know, something like that, we'll obviously load up with uh, the leftover of pop that we have. So all, gets, all goes to good use. Do you, do, you, do you give out diet stuff, dude? Does anyone ask you for diet no, stuff? No, we don't. No. And it, I, I, I was asked about that, and I was like, no, it's Halloween. I don't even drink pop myself. I drink. I'll drink diet, but I was like, no, it's Halloween. It's all sugar. Like that's the point. <laughs> you get the sugar. So, so is this going to be something you're going to continue doing for a while? Like I know the kids are getting older and like all that stuff. I guess at some point you got to hang up the bottles, right? But not yet. I don't imagine. I don't think so. You know, one of the there was a lady that there I was getting a, a little bit of backlash on um one of the Facebook posts that someone posted about us. And a lady was like, you know what? Like said to the guy, You may think it's stupid, but she had a kid who's has autism and he's mm-hmm. he just refuses to go Halloweening and all of that. And she's always wanted him to experience it. And then he saw my TikTok video, I guess, and he's like, Mom, I, I want to go to that guy's house. Like, I want to go to his house. And so she's like, to me, that's like, everyone may think this is stupid, but to me, this, you know, my son's willing to do something now because of this guy. And that's amazing. And I was like, you know what? It's all worth it at that point. It is. I mean, Shane, what I think is so great about it is that it really is in the spirit of Halloween. Like, it really is. And and that and that, yes. that part is great. That part about it is great. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be dad carrying 19 pounds of no. bottles, but, no, but, no, but it's, a great, it's a great thing. I've been many of nights, many of nights about it, but... <laughs> there you go. Well, Shane, uh, congratulations. Thank you so much for sharing a little trick-or-treating, a little Halloween with a little more conversation tonight. And me, I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. R.H. Thompson is one of the best, he's really one of Canada's best known actors, accomplished actors on stage and screen. His movie career stretches back four decades, his presence on TV even further to 1976. You may have seen him play Jasper Dale in Road to Avonlea, Matthew Cuthbert on Anne with an E uh, while on stage. I mean, the list is incredibly long uh, for his stage career. He has seven Gemini nominations to his credit, two wins. In May of 2015, Thompson received a Governor General's Performing Arts Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement. Um, But his life's work has also included a longtime interest in the history of Canada at war and the broader histories of the First and Second World War in particular. Um, that part of that was being born with several uncles who fought in the fir- great uncles, rather, who fought in the First World War and a father 
who uh, fought in the Second World War and returned. He returned uh, to share those stories. Many of his great uncles actually died in the First World War. Uh, on the 90th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge, in which nearly 3,600 Canadians died, he co-created a commemoration in which the name of each soldier was projected onto the National War Memorial. In 2009, he... Uh, co-worked again, did something else similar with the names of more than 68,000 Canadians who died in the First World War, uh, onto famous monuments right across the country. And he's also embarked on this huge project called The World Remembers. It's a visual projection that presents the names of more than 4.2 million military personnel from both sides of the First World War who died between 1914 and 1922, covers a bunch of countries, a bunch of countries, um, everything from obviously Canada to the UK, France and so on, Croatia, Austria, India, South Africa, it goes on and on and on. So as we prepare for November 11th, uh, coming up soon, tomorrow, of course, November 1st is usually that day where everyone puts their poppies on once Halloween is done. Um, Thomas is out with his first book, R.H. Thomas is out with his first book. It's a memoir based on that project as well as his own family history it's called by it's called by the ghost light and it's definitely a personal look at the wonder of youth the power of art and how the first and second world wars forever changed his family and uh it's he describes it as wars memories and families and rh thompson joins me now thank you so much thanks for asking me thanks for being here nice to be here you spent a lot of years sort of revisiting your family's war history, uh, but this is the – there was the play and then there's been the project uh, and so on, the, the World Remembers Project. What made you decide it was time to put it all down on paper this way? Because it's a, it sort of feels like a, a bow a bit on this long story that you've been telling. The bow of the book actually came out of the World Remembers. Right. It didn't really come out of my family history. I'm connected to that war only because I lost seven great uncles in that war. Hey, that's a nice round number. Hey, seven. <laughs> but it isn't the reason I went into the book. The reason I went in, into the book is by setting up the World Remembers, um, not that we're going to talk politics and not <laughs> we're going to talk about war, but the stories you tell about a war afterwards are really, really important. And everybody tells stories after the war. The historians who shape it up, the people who want to rah-rah, the people who want to rip it apart. And the nature of the stories that are told after a war determine, I believe, whether you will be ready to fight the next one. Right. And, and he- I'm in the storytelling arts, right? I'm in theater. I'm in theater, TV and film. We are the storytelling arts. So we bear some responsibility for what we talk about war. So knowing that, and then working on the world remembers, which I'm trying to get 30 nations into, I have 23. I talked to the Slovenians. I talked to the Americans. I talked to the Australians. I talked to the South Africans. I talked to the Germans. I talked to the Turks. And you get very different stories of the war, what their people did in it, what it meant. And those stories from all, you know, visiting all these capitals, uh, Bratislava and Budapest, kind of refigured the inside of my head about my Canada story and my own family story. So I went back into my own family story thinking, okay, what if a Serb was sitting beside me now? What if a Frenchman was sitting beside me now? What if a South African black soldier was sitting beside me now? So that's the way into the work for me. And there's a, there's a great passage when, when you're, in fact, in Serbia for the first time. I think Roman Waschuk, who was the ambassador to Ukraine when I used to go there, was with you there. And this whole idea of how different uh, memory of that time is, this First World War specifically, the Second World War, war generally. You talk a lot about how you came to understand the history of Canada's two great wars at the time. And a lot of it was through your family, but also just through 
how it was being portrayed broadly. And of course, at that point, very different from what it might be for someone growing up today whose visions of war might only be having seen the images of Iraq or maybe knowing going to school with a kid from Ukraine. It's different than it was in 1958, 59. It was. We came out, I know you're a lot younger than I am, but we came out of the Romantic Age. So World War I was the end of the Romantic Age. But that sense of romanticism of nationhood continued through the 40s and 50s and 60s. Then we kind of blew it all. I mean, bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki got rid of any romanticism that was ever left. And now we're in the nuclear age. So the memories of these kids now, the danger for me is we are re-entering a populist romantic sense of history where you don't debate, you don't dialogue, you don't have moderates dealing with everything that's going on. You let the extremists, the emotionalists, the populists get at it. And we've seen what happens in the United States when that happens. We've seen what happens in Turkey. It's a pretty destructive force. So while, yes, we came out of a romantic time, then went into a realistic time, 50s, 60s, 70s, because we almost wrecked the world totally, we're going back into a very dangerous, romanticized, populist time. And you just show me a Marvel comic movie, and I'll show you romanticism about violence. And it's a real dangerous place. In, in trying to reframe this, because I think what we would always think of, you know, history is written by the victors, right? And, and that's really, that's always kind of the way it's been. I think we kind of accept that at face value. And what I think what, you've, what you're attempting to do as well is trying to reframe that to, to a certain extent so that it's not only written by the victors, because oftentimes um, that leaves out some very important parts of the story. And it allows mistakes to be made again and again and again and again. And I ask myself, how do we tell the stories as Canadians? Mm. We can see it right now with the Middle East. What do we say as Canadians about Gaza, about Hamas, about the Israelis? If we side with one or the other, is that appropriate? If we don't side, if we take a moderate middle position and say, wait a minute, there's crazies on both sides, there's enormous hurt on both sides, there's injustice on both sides, but there's incredible need on both. You kind of, you get shot at sometimes. If you stand in the middle of, if you stand in no man's land, you get shot at by both sides. So the attempt to polarize, if we're in a war, you're with us or against us, buddy. One way, you can't stand in the middle. With us or against us. Which are you, Ben? Yeah. That's a real powerful weapon, and it's also a destructive weapon. So what do we do in Canada? Okay, here we are in the Middle East, and we're watching it happen, figuring out how do we have a moderate, compassionate debate when both sides are saying you don't feel for us enough? But it's how do you tell the stories of all the wars because everyone who fought in World War II, all sides, live here. So how are we going to remember that? So I say in November the 11th, it's as if it's a very honorable moment, and I'm so glad that we do it. But the script was written in 1920. We wouldn't do a play that was written in 1920. We wouldn't do a film script that was written in 1920. We'd say 100 years later, it's time to update it. But we don't look at updating or expanding the narrative or the script of what we do on November the 11th. And because we're a very different country now than we were then, do we remember on November the 11th, 11 o'clock, like we were in 20, 1920? Or do we remember as we are now in 2023? And I say we have to remember as we are now. And that means new language. That means expansion. That means inclusion. So, I mean, I, the reaction to the world remembers, uh, we did a large, I finally got the money to do a 
with Susky Centenary money, and I put a big screen up on Old City Hall and cost me an arm and a leg, and I put the projectors in Hudson's Bay Company across the street. They gave me a, a, a utility room on the fourth floor that I projected across Queen Street, and we projected all the names from many countries up there over a month. And a woman came up to me, and she said, thank you. I said, oh, great, thank you very much. She said, that's the first time I've ever felt included as a Canadian on November the 11th. I said, what do you mean? She said, I've always felt excluded, always went quiet. I said, oh, why? My family came from Germany in 1946. She said, I was born here. I'm born Canadian. But every November the 11th, I step back and I go very quiet. Well, I don't think you can do that for the Punjabi Canadian or the Vietnamese Canadian, the Chinese Canadian or the Italian Canadian or all those Canadians. You can't do that. So somehow we have to open it, as it were. So that's partly what the book is about as well, as well as the world. The world remembers continues to be a, a raging headache. Passion. Sorry. not Passion. A headache, exactly. Passion. R.H. Thompson is with us. His book is called By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memories, and Families. Uh, you had a really interesting point period in the book where you talk about when you did The Lost Boys, uh, the play that was based on letters, right? Uh, from war letters uh, from mainly from your family. And how often people would simply come up and tell you stories. I mean, even now, 2023, and maybe perhaps it's a story about Afghanistan. Perhaps it's, it's a story about the Balkans in the, in the 90s. Maybe it's a story about, about another part of the world. Maybe it's a story about Korea. Uh, fewer and fewer, unfortunately, about the Second World War because they're, we're losing them. But families carry those tales even to this day. Yep. And they're down there. And they have to come out. And we know the veterans. The veterans usually won't talk about them. Their experiences they don't want to talk about, but the wives have them, the uncles have them, the children have them. What do they do with them? And somehow, well, I, again, I ask in the book, the stories that you are told when you're five years old and six years old and seven years old, they kind of form a kind of basement of your imagination. And you may grow up and you may change, you may get wiser and you may learn and you may you may build a different kind of house, but the basement of those original stories are still there. And those war stories sit down there, built into the structure of our kind of imaginative basements, as it were. And that's why I believe in the world, remember, in, in the Lost Boys, every night I performed it in whatever three cities, and every night people came back and went, I don't know, whatever, good show, bad show, interesting show. Then they all told me their stories, and I never asked. And I thought, why? I didn't ask, but they were compelled to come out which is why I think the basement is talking, that imagination way down there. And that's an important place to acknowledge. And whether the basement determines what you think now or whether you have to amend the building on top so as not to create another war. No, stories are imperatives. I don't believe stories are entertainment. Well, they entertain, but they're imperatives, which is why big producers spend $200 million on a very cheap plot and will turn it into a movie because they make a lot of money. But the telling of the story is an imperative to the tribe. And therefore, those of us in the storytelling parts have a fairly substantial responsibility for what we tell. You mentioned something interesting as well in the book being, because I remember my mom telling me these stories about how when, when the Hungarian, when those fleeing 56 and Hungary showed up in Canadian schools, it gave Canadian kids a new perspective on history they hadn't had before. And I was thinking about all the kids in Canada now who are probably going to school, may have a, a one, two, three more Ukrainian kids in their classes and how they're going to bring a different perspective to all this. So in some senses, and you know, in my time, it was different countries that, that 
people who come to this country bring their own perspectives of war. And sometimes you, when you're still building that basement, you hear from them. Yep. And look at the demonstrations in the streets right now. Mm. The ones supporting Israel, the ones supporting Palestine. They've all come from countries, whether I'm Lebanese, whether I'm Palestinian, you know, whether, uh, whether I'm Syrian. They all come knowing war. And many of them have come to Canada because they want to get away from war. So I think we're in a, our country is in a very unique position in how we talk about wars and how we remember wars. But because we're now every people, right, we're vast losing the majority. We're going to become a plurality of minorities. There's going to be no big white clump in the middle, which are the majority. It's going to be all minorities, which means it is a true assembly of all the peoples on the earth. Therefore, how do you have a conflict in there? Because there's no one big guy to go after. It's all the minorities. So watching the Israeli, the Palestinian, or I don't know if it's a Hamas debate, Israeli-Hamas debate or Israeli-Palestinian, in Canada is interesting because in my best moments, I think that in this country, there is less tinder, there's less kindling for that conflict between Palestinian Canadians and Israeli Canadians, there's less dry timber there for it to ignite into an actual war. And that's my dream for this country, that because we are every people, you cannot get those ignition points anymore. There will be hatred, there will be prejudice, but the commonality of saying, no, we are a reasonable people, and we've come here, if we can fix our relationships with indigenous peoples, we are here to get away from those old ways of thinking and find a new way forward. That may be terribly idealistic, but it's what I call sometimes think Canada is a, is a country with round rooms. We don't have any corners. Nobody can get cornered in our country because there's no corners anymore. Because the Indo-Canadians and the Chinese Canadians and the Slovenian Canadians and the American Canadians and the Nigerian Canadians we're all around in this big circle. And I and I think we're at a, I don't know, I'm very optimistic about where we could go as a nation if we do it right. And I, I suppose to sit down and, and put a book like this out, you need to be, you need to have some faith in the future too. And I guess that's why, <laughs> that's what you want people to walk away from, right? Is that idea that these stories need to be reconsidered, retold and, and understood in a different way. Yeah. Go tell your stories, go collect the stories because they're important. But listen to everyone's stories. So when we're watching the news and we see, you know, whether I'm in Montreal or Vancouver or Toronto and, and there's the Palestinian demonstration and then there's the Israeli-Canadian demonstration, listen. Understand that the dead child killed by Hamas and the dead child killed by the Israelis, they're equal. But it's also a time where you see incredible compassion and empathy. You see incredible human acts of kindness, of compassion, of helping others. You know, whether it's a Palestinian doctor saying, I'm not leaving the hospital. I'm not leaving these babies. Or whether those guys who are those Israeli guys were trying to find and bury the bodies within the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. The incredible compassion that comes out in times of great destruction always moves me and always gives me hope. A perfect place. Uh, Arish Thompson, thank you so much. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. My friend John paid some pirates to go to an island to talk to people about Jesus when he knew that he had no business doing that.
John's parents brought him up to be Christian. He was just like full of light. I had a little bit of a crush on him. You couldn't have asked for a better young man. He reminds me of who I wanted to serve with. He told me his plan was to go live in the middle of the jungle. It didn't sound that bad. I thought that John would get accepted. People whose language no one speaks, whose culture no one knows. There's a fine line between faith and madness. Once he found out about that tribe, he knew he was going to go all in. That's a clip from a documentary that's just out called The Mission. North Sentinel Island and the people that live there remain to this day one of the most isolated indigenous peoples in the world. The island sits in the Andaman Island chain that's in the Bay of Bengal between Thailand and India. It has long captured the imagination of those who see in the Sentinelese a blank canvas for any number of things, from study to spreading the word of God. It was the latter that drove a young American missionary named John Allen Chow to make his way to that remote island in 2018, a journey that he planned diligently for more than a decade. Uh, His mission ends in his death. Chow was killed by arrows, a story that made news right around the world when it happened in 2018. It also captured the imagination of a California documentary-making couple uh, who decided that John's story and all that it encompasses was one definitely worth exploring. Again, the movie is called The Mission. The directors are Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain in collaboration with National Geographic. And they join me now, Amanda and Jesse. Thank you for your time tonight. Hey, Ben. Hi, Ben. Tell me about this story, because I think I remember I remember the headlines when it happened, but is that where you first sort of landed on it and decided this is a story you wanted to tell? Uh, that's where we encountered the story in the headlines. I think many people did in 2018. Uh, John Chow was killed, uh, attempting to convert this very remote tribe, the Sentinelese, 9,000 miles from his home in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, it was a it was a global story. I think it was uh, both what propelled this young missionary to do this very dangerous thing. And who is this tribe, this mysterious tribe that has remained almost uncontacted um, uh, what, what, how have we never heard about them in this island? It's like the last unmapped place on earth. And uh, there were more questions and answers in all of those stories. And I think that it just kind of grabbed us and we weren't quite sure how to approach it. Um, but partnering with National Geographic gave us an opportunity to really dig into the story and some of the questions that made us really, frankly, uncomfortable about this. What were those questions, Amanda? Because I can think of, I can think of what they might have been, but from your perspective, I mean, I think um, you know we understood his zeal, but there were a lot of things about it that were discomforting. For sure, I mean, Jesse and I, to be frank, didn't grow up in the church, so I think there is a long-term project for us um, in in exploring um, people who moments of radical faith. So we made a film about 10 years ago about a pastor Mm -hmm. uh, in a Lutheran church in North Dakota who opened his church up to house um, men who'd come up there looking for work. And, and, and that, that film again was a long time ago. So, and, and a very different story, but I think there's a certain part of this um, that is um, an exploration for us of faith as people outside faith. This story was one of those stories that captivated, I think, people in faith communities, but also secular communities. And there's so few stories that do that in a way that I think provide a conversation between 
believers and non-believers that that I find really interesting. But I think for me, the the action of what John did and the questions of consent around missionary work are are very uncomfortable. And I think the good news of being this far into our careers is we kind of like those are the ones that we actually want to lean into and figure out why and and what happens when we pull the thread on that story of John going to this indigenous tribe. And of course, it does relate to many, many other instances throughout history um, that we then started to dis- lean into researching. For listeners to know, The Overnighters is the previous film made about uh, a decade ago, which again looks at sort of the oil patch. I think it was in North Dakota. Is that right? And then this one pastor who brings in all these people because there's no housing. Uh, there's no housing when people go work in this oil boom. Uh, tell me a bit about about John Chow himself, because he's, as I watched the, the documentary, he's both a really admirable young man. Like he's the kind of guy you think, what a what a great what a great guy. And at the same time, you see him sort of heading down this road into thinking, this is not going to end well. John is a paradox, and I think that's what um, drew us into trying to understand him. Um, he he's a, a young man of of radical faith, um, uh, very uh, driven, determined, methodical in his approach. He planned this mission for ten years, um, so very thoughtful, very intelligent. This wasn't a reckless and impulsive act, um, which it was portrayed as initially. I think in some news accounts. Um, and he's also a young man who who appeared to have almost no doubt, um, which is, I think, hard for many of us to reconcile, uh, to understand how, how could he remain so unswerving and unwavering in his commitment to this mission. Um, John also left an extraordinary amount of social media. He, he documented a lot of his life, not all of his life. In fact, there were things that he kept hidden. And part of what the film does is sort of measure the space between the hidden and the and the public. And he was a mountain climber, a mountaineer. He loved the outdoors. He was a, an influencer um, and and like posted about the beef jerky that he ate on camping trips. But he didn't really reveal to many people what he was truly preparing himself to do, which is to survive on this island with a hunter-gatherer tribe. And, and so there was a spiritual training and a physical training that he um, took on upon himself because this was, he believed, the, the most dangerous um, a, a possible act of missionary work. And he I think he wanted to prove to himself and to to his God that this that he was the, the right person for this task. Because, I mean, uh, the way it's described, and if listeners don't know about North Sentinel Island, it's in the Andaman, uh, and it's part of the Andaman Islands, which and the Andaman, Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which are off the coast of India, uh, in the Andaman Ocean. Uh, I guess right about there, I'm probably getting my geography somewhat wrong. Um, but it, it is, uh, uh, Amanda, I mean, the North Central Island is is sort of the final frontier for the missionary, is it not? That's right. I think there are, well, there are many missionaries out in the world. There are very few who do the kind of mission that John did. And um, it is extremely dangerous, very remote and the unreached people groups. There are very few of them still. Um, So that's controversial in and of itself, even within um, communities that uh, support missionary work. So I think that's an interesting part of this conversation, one we hoped to include voices within, um, you know, faith communities. Not everybody agrees that this was a good thing to do. So I think that's part of it. Um, John also, I mean, I'm just going to add to what Jesse said. John very clearly, at least from his social media and from all the family and friends and teachers that we talked to in his life, really loved life. So I think it's important to note this is not somebody who um, 
didn't have a lot to lose. Um, and also someone who had someone very close in his life, his father, who did not agree with this kind of missionary work. His father was also a Christian, um, raised John um, within that faith, um, Assembly of God. And I, you know, but disagreed fundamentally with John's interpretation of the Great Commission portion of, of scripture. So I think that that is one of the points of connection for us, Jesse and I, as parents um, uh, of kids to understand this story in a human level um, from his father's point of view, what happens when your kid just, you lose them to something um, like, like he did. Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain are co-directors of The Mission. It's a movie about uh, John Allen Chow, who was killed in 2018 in a place called North Sentinel Island. He was an American missionary trying to make contact with one of the world's most isolated remaining Indigenous people, the Sentinelese. Um, You mentioned it, and I thought of this because I just sort of read the biography of the two of you before, of course, and I thought of you making this movie as parents. And, And his father is probably... I mean, there's many people who weigh in in a very interesting way in this film, but his father is perhaps the most um, the most tragic in, so, in some ways and also the most frustrating because you can see that he wants to instill some doubt in his in his undoubting son and he just can never do it. Yeah, that the letter that Patrick shared with us, um, he really wrote it to himself and it's it's anguished in, in uh, Patrick's pain. Um, and, and also profound in, in the theological questions that Patrick is grappling with. And it, it was a, a really grounding for us. I mean, this is a heady film. It, it poses and confronts kind of big philosophical questions, but it's also a very human story. And, and Patrick opened up a conversation for us as for us as non-believers. Patrick is a Christian, but I think he's challenging John's worldview and, and John's decision to bring his faith, his radical faith to this hunter-gatherer tribe and questions whether this is almost more of a colonial project. And I think that's one of the discoveries for us in understanding John and reading some of the words that he wrote uh, and what his father wrote about him is that he embodied two faiths, evangelical Christianity, but also the faith of adventure and exploration um, that I think many of us have fallen under uh, the sway of. Uh, We read Tintin, John read Tintin. He was influenced by Tintin, frankly. Um, Robinson Crusoe, Narnia, um, we share these stories with John. They have influenced us. They have shaped how we think about indigenous cultures. And so John, in some ways, is not, he's different from us in in profound ways, but also like us in, in very meaningful ways. And I think that um, we, this film became in unexpected ways a reckoning with the stories that we have told ourselves about indigenous communities that have justified the contact we make with them, whether we are missionaries, filmmakers, anthropologists, or have some other ulterior motives, you know, and, and I think that's where partnering with National Geographic gave us an opportunity to really scrutinize ourselves and our position and the stories that we have taken in. Because you're able um, to go back, Amanda, and, and tell a lot of the story about the North Sentinelese as well, but the island itself, because of this, the access, I mean, it's not just about John and his willingness to want to go there. It's about the history and who's been there and the history of contact, the history of contact in other parts of the Andaman Islands, which didn't end well for the groups that live there. And this idea that the, that those who live on North Sentinel Island are pretty keenly aware of, of the downside of contact. And, and thus, this is not about sort of uh, savagery, as might have been portrayed in, say, a Tainte book 60 years ago. This is about a certain savviness about what contact might mean in the long run for them. That was one of the discoveries, for sure, in this in in researching and 
contextualizing both parts of this moments of moment of contact. We knew we were going to be able to talk to friends and family and, and teachers, et cetera, of John and, and get to know him. But there's very few people to be able to talk to about the Sentinelese. We were never going to go there. It's unethical. It's illegal. Um, and but there are certain people who've attempted to make the a similar journey to John's over the many years, the anthropologist TN Pandit uh, in the 70s and um this historian who becomes one of the voices of our film, who um, gave us a lot of context as to the trauma, really, that that this tribe um, experienced in their history with a, an English viceroy um, named uh, Maurice Vidal Portman. Mm -hmm. um, so they are not, in fact, uncontacted. They have a history um, of few but very key moments of contact that certainly inform how they understand the outside world and um, understandably um, don't want any part of it. But John did his homework. That's what's interesting about him, too. He wasn't naive. And we discovered his master plan. It was a 26-page document that he wrote and shared with key supporters to raise money for his mission. And in that, he provides a reading list of the books, the anthropology, not just the scriptural texts that informed him and the stories of missionaries uh, like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who went to Ecuador in the 50s and became kind of a, a martyrs um, for many missionaries and, and influences, certainly for John. Um, but but he was aware of, of some of the Sentinelese history. So I think he just believed that God was on his side. He does. I mean, he goes, and I don't want to give away too much for it because I suggest people people watch it. People know what happens at the end, I think. Uh, and we've mentioned it already. But he returns. He returns. He's sort of given the ultimate, let's call it, for lack of a better word, divine intervention and told, don't come back. And he goes back. I mean, he's that committed to this that he sort of hits that point of no return. And it leaves you wondering sometime whether there was a naivete to John, too, that's that's really frustrating because obviously he had a lot to give. He had a lot to give in the long run. Well, call it naivete or call it um, faith. Or yeah. call it a messiah complex. I mean, I think yeah. that is the question um, that is asked at some point in our movie by a number of people. So, John was telling his story. I'm a climber. I'm an adventurer. Here we are, hiking out. If things don't go well, he wanted to look like a young, arrogant, Western person, did a stupid thing, and move on. John said to me, this is what the plan looks like. Have it right here. There's so many ways the seductions of this story can go wrong. This idea of people who exist out of time, that erases their humanity. These cultures that are isolated, when we cross that boundary, we're saying your prohibition means nothing to us. That there's a group that we would decide, sorry, you don't get to hear about Jesus. That's a violation of their human right. John did exactly what Jesus told him to do. John was pursuing a fantasy in discerning the call. We can mess it up. My friend did something stupid and courageous and bold, and I wish I was that bold. Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain are with us this 45 minutes. They're co-directors of a movie called The Mission. It tells the story of John Allen Chow, who was killed in 2018. He was an American missionary uh, who attempted to make contact with one of the world's most isolated indigenous people, the Sentinelese, in a place called North Sentinel Island. There's, there's Watching this, you, you're sort of taken back in time to the much longer history 
of of missionaries and so on and the good and bad that has been done in in the name of god over by many different religions over a very long time uh but to isolate it back to just john's story what would you like people to take away from it uh because i imagine like every documentary you begin in you begin with an idea uh the story of john's death and then you wander through many many things and you come out the other side you must have learned so much doing this one Certainly, it, it really um, challenged us. It opened our, our our eyes to thinking about the stories that we tell ourselves and how that that they, they shape our our view of the wider world um, and how we think of ourselves when we're younger as the center of the story. And as we grow older, we we come to recognize that the the, the world is is bigger b- bigger than we are. And there's a kind of um, a narcissism, I guess, inherent in some of what John undertook. That I think. Other voices in the film who are older and have more perspective put into context because they have done things that John did or like what John did, but have remorse or regret or wisdom about those choices. And I think that's, in a way, part of how we were able to give dimension to John is to provide these alter egos. Um, I think the film invites people in who have very different perspectives. I think it it challenges those people, whether you believe John was a martyr or you condemn him, it will challenge you in different ways. I think it creates a space for conversation. And we live in such a divided, polarized world that I hope I hope it it, it does create that space for, for reflection and dialogue. I also think that it's po- worth pointing out that we do judge John. We are not without judgment. I mean, we... Mm-hmm. I think we hopefully found a, a, a polite way to express our views through the really through the views of some other characters in the film, like a missionary who went to the Amazon uh, and did the work that John did, but really has strong feelings now about about those um, those actions. So um, I uh, I think it's also part of a, a conversation that's probably worth having now about fundamentalism, frankly. And, um, you know, we, we, for those of us who are not, who don't share those kind of rigid beliefs, it's, I think we're, we're engaged in a kind of worldwide project to understand how fundamentalism can, can shape people's actions. And I think John is, is humanized, but I think that there is something in his faith that's worth probing, um, for sure. Uh, I, I don't 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 want to draw too many parallels, but you know I spent a lot of time covering ISIS at the time at the time of their rise and and what fundamentalism can look like. Now, clearly, what John was trying to do wasn't nearly as nihilistic as that, mm-hmm. but you can see some of the parallels between sort of the the just the non the undoubting, the absolute pure unadulterated faith that they're doing the right thing in the name of God, and it's and it's an awe it's odd to watch someone. And because he leaves, he has many diaries, right? I gather that's what you relied on a lot. So it's often in his own words. But to see his absolute con- conviction in his own sort of purity and the purity of his mission uh, can be can be a bit daunting to watch, to be honest. And the way in which um, young men in particular are susceptible to messages of radicalization, because I think it's wrapped up not only in sort of their faith, but also in their sense of vir- virility and masculinity, Um that's notable. You know, John was, as we talked about, an outdoorsman. He really, I think part of this was a test of survival, you know, of, of manly virtue and the, the the stories. He was a Christian Boy Scout as a young man. And, um, you know, you could see that that, that, that this was a um, uh, really kind of living out a kind of fantasy and enchantment that, that ad, actually had very destructive ends. And, and I think it's, it is that, that, that aspect of it is worth acknowledging. Yeah. I mean, and what makes it more complicated, I think for me to accept um, is, is that it's all in the, for the purpose of love, 
right? right. Unlike an ISIS, there, there's a real feeling of love be, that that's the delivery. And to me, that is what makes this so vexing um, as far as a, a point of view problem, which is from the other side, it just, you, you have to always be thinking about what the other side is receiving. And that's why the question of consent for me is so key here. Yeah, it would, it would have been a tough doc if you didn't like John, right? Like if you didn't like John, if you didn't feel something like affection for John, it would have been a tough story to tell because you would have had no sympathy. You needed to have some sympathy for him and his and what he was up to. Uh, it was interesting. You do bring up some stuff that I think has been well documented when it comes to sort of zealotry. And that is that he had some rough patches in his life. His father talks about having some rough patches and that maybe John felt the need to do something spectacular in life because something was going on outside of, of his his own existence that he felt like he couldn't control. Certainly there, there there's a, a psychological dimension to the dynamics within John's family that his father uh, hints at that that John went searching for another fog, father figure and and he actually found, he found people in his missionary world who became his role models. There's a proverb as as um, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And his father alludes to people who perhaps manipulated John. That and and his father uses the term whirlpool to describe this sort of radicalization that that swept John up in this mindset and was that was reinforced. There were people who went with John to the Andamans to prepare him for his final voyage, and he so he very much was not the lone wolf. There was. He's described as the spear tip on a, on, an, on, a, on a shaft that, that that is the kind of support network. Um, and we actually speak to all nations, a missionary organization that, that uh, John came to, and and they provided logistical support, spiritual support, and sent him on his way, and have no regret. But notably, they don't go right. Yeah, it's just John who's the last, um, you know, on boots on the ground, final. Um, part of the contact, the dangerous part. So. They won't even tell you that when, when you ask them point blank about this, they won't even talk about it. They, um, they're, they're guarded. Um, and they're proud of John. He's on their website. You know, they, they right. really recognize him now as a missionary. Um, they think they did their due diligence. They said, does this kid have the martyr complex? They decided uh, the Messiah complex, excuse me. <laughs> they decided he did not. Now, my question is if, if John didn't have the Messiah complex, who does? Really, and um, I mean that's for them to decide. You know what the criteria is of evaluation. Um, but um, I, I, um, yeah, I think there's accountability here that that has gone kind of unacknowledged, and and that um, I don't know that. I mean, it's nice that there are voices beyond Patrick Chow, his father, like his young pastor Cameron Silsby, who I think gently questions some of John's choices. John comes to him in a moment of doubt, and they have a conversation about discernment. And um, Cameron, I think, allows us to see some of the tiny fissures of doubt that might have emerged. Of course, John left this incredible diary that survived mm -hmm. him. He, he did not survive, but the diary is 14 pages. It's the truest portrait we get of John's interior life. And, and it is like Patrick's letter itself, anguished, painful, raw, incredibly detailed and charting these moments of encounter that John has before his death. And using the diary and Patrick's letter, we're able to put these two father and son in conversation with each other and give the film, I think, that kind of emotional 
um, framework that it, it really needed for us to care as outsiders. And I think this film was also a challenge to us to say, can you care about this young man who's done something that you condemn? What the what of the Sentinelese? What of North Sentinel? I guess it's one part of the story that isn't that you cannot tell because again, it's prohibited to go there. The government prohibits contact there as well. Um, but what of them? I suppose they they remain the kind of other in this whole story. They are still there, living their lives, and for the time being, I can't imagine there isn't another missionary out there thinking that this mightn't be a bad idea. As ridiculous as that sounds. I think there probably is, unfortunately, someone who's going to attempt to do what John did. Um, again, not something we agree with. Um, to me, there's a real value in the fact that there's a place out there that is left alone, especially if most importantly, because that's the way they want it. So um it does make it a challenge of storytelling for us, but in a way, kind of a great challenge. Like, why are you so curious? Why do you need to know so much about these people? Why, why, why? Right. And as you know, documentarians, there's a little piece of us that's got a journalist kind of quality of wanting to know. Geneticists would love to go into that island. Anthropologists would love to go on that island. There's scientific reasons for wanting to go to that island, but there's also so much more. There's many more important reasons to leave it alone. Adam Goodhart, the historian in the film, describes his own feeling when he went there as a young man as Odysseus and the Sirens, you know, drawn closer. But what he's come to recognize is really what we think about the island is so much a projection of the fantasies and the kind of misunderstandings that we have about indigenous communities that we we, we think we bring enlightened modernity to these people who need us. And I think... um, and that what what when we go there, we're enacting a, really a story about ourselves that has nothing to do with who they are and what they want. And um, I think that's the really the takeaway of the film too is that, in particular, North Sentinel and the Andamans have been a kind of locus of mythology um, for how we have thought about tribes in the 20th century. This is the island chain that produced the movie King Kong, right. you know, going back a hundred years, defining them as cannibals, defining them as as kind of sentimental um, Garden of Eden dwelling um, uh, peoples. You know, it, it's just, we've written different fantasies on these people for tw- for, tw- for over a hundred years. And, and in fact, National Geographic itself, our patron has been the primary kind of narrative storyteller of those um, views. And I think that's why we take them to task too in the film and look at some of the coverage they have offered readers uh, about the Sentinelese. In fact, in the 1970s, they, they underwrote an uh, anthropological expedition to North Sentinel. It's extraordinary footage and photographs. But the way that those photo- photographs were presented in the magazine is reductive. Jesse and Amanda, congratulations. I hope people watch this. Thank you so much. Ben, thanks a lot. Appreciate your good questions. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.